0: Now, you know, on the property here, we would probably average two to two and a half. The Australian average is less than that. Now just imagine if we could even get it to 5%, right? Let alone 10%. Imagine the life productivity and resilience that you'd see in such a landscape. And that's, that's the goal. That's the goal that, that we need to be aiming at collectively as, as you know, Australian farming community.
2: G'day and welcome back to The Regenerative Journey uh, before I bang on about our wonderful guest for this week. I just want to mention a couple of quick things. Um, if you're indeed interested in buying some of our biodynamic lamb, it's a new uh, enterprise, a new breed of lamb we're using here at Hennemino. It's called the Kilso. Uh, David Alexander over at Cootamundra uh, and his son Jim got us onto that. Um, a couple of years ago, and it's beautiful lamb. Ah, the way you can get your hands and your mouths and plates and kitchens and pans and everything on that beautiful lamb of ours, it's via Integrity Meats. Now, Luke and Stu, two good buddies who farming over towards, um, uh, and Crookwall, they have bought a butcher shop in Goulburn. They've called it Integrity Meats, and they're, um, selling amazing, uh, regeneratively grown products: duck, beef, lamb, our lamb, um, and many other yummy things. Pork. So the guys over there are doing a wonderful job of um, getting that lamb of ours into homes, and they're also doing deliveries into in the sort of the Southern Tablelands and also into Sydney. So if you are all interested, get to Integrity Meats and their website there Put your order in. You can, you can go into the shop, get this bits and pieces, or you can order online and get half and full lambs of ours, all for your little self. Another thing I want to plug um, is our Your Regenerative Journey webinar series. It's kicking off on the 16th of August. There will be an ad somewhere in this episode about it, uh, but we have secured some amazing uh, guest speakers and it's all about how you. Even you know, if you're uh, looking to farm or you've just started farming and you want to do it in a more natural way in and in a, in a regenerative way, this is the course to do. Uh, our seven speakers will guide you through different facets, different cornerstones of regenerative farming, and and not just farming, but but living. And it's all about you know, it's, it's about the philosophy and the attitude of what you are trying to do on your beautiful bit of land that you are stewarding at this time and also for farmers and gardeners who are already sort of gardening and farming and doing their thing and just looking to maybe do things differently and even those who are already on their regenerative journey who are just keen to learn a bit more you know get back to basics because we often can get very excited about jumping on board changing things as i always say you know the first place to first place the first pattern to change is the one between your ears and and sometimes just getting back to basic, basics and 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 sitting and thinking, especially visions and goals type stuff, um, you know the the basics of soil and, and and what to look for and what to start digging around for, and what to what to investigate, the data to collect, um, health of animals, health of your finances, uh, health of your grass. It's all tied together in our webinar series. So if you're looking to sharpen your saw um, or sharpen your pencil, uh with your skills and expertise and even just basic understanding of of getting on the uh the more naturally farming bandwagon then join us um details will be at charliearnett.com.au, and we can't wait to have you join us it's going to be global because it's um it's a it's a virtual uh the modules are virtual once a week starting on the 16th of August kicking off with Nicole Masters actually she's been got a very tight time time frame and we're thrilled that she can um, squeeze this little session in for us and kick off the whole thing. Um, and then Katie Zerner will be the following week to talk about visions and goals and values. Uh, now, that all culminates on a with a farm tour here at Hanamina on the 13th of October. Okay, so you can buy tickets that are just a webinar series. If you're overseas and you know you can't get here or if you want to get a bit down and dirty, learn some more about biodynamics, natural sequence farming, Stuart Andrews is going to be here um a number of our other guest speakers will be here as well to talk about their different different um pillars and principles uh then get yourself here on the 13th of August, of, of 13th of October and um put it in the diary just block it out block out a bit of time before and after to get yourself here and uh, we can't wait to see you that's probably enough of the blurb about what we're going on about Johannes Meyer, I met, oh, 2018, 2019 it might have been, at Danthania. I went to one of their wonderful field days they put on there. And Christine Jones, Dr. Christine Jones spoke at that and she is amazing. So lovely to get back there a few months ago to do a two-day introduction to biodynamics workshop with Hamish at Danthonia, the uh, Christian community there, which I just love the way that all works. Is you know, 150, 200 um, people in the community, um, they school their children there. They've got lots of different enterprises. A lot of the food they eat comes from the farm, big vegetable garden, lots of meat. And and Johannes is uh, essentially um, one of the principals there of the, the agriculture and the animal um, uh, part of the business, part of the community. And what a lovely bloke. We did our two-day workshop and the end of the second day we snuck down to, a, to the dam, a little dam down there with a hut. And um, after some... It rained on the tin roof. There's no power there, so we had to go back and get a generator. Then that one buggered up, and then we got another one. And I think that one stopped working. <laughs> so you'll probably notice you were, well, maybe not. Reese is a bit of a magician with audio, so you may or may not notice somewhere in the middle of this what he's been able to. We actually lost a bit of the um, audio um, uh, when when we were recording with um, when I was recording with Johannes um when the generator stopped we lost 15 20 minutes but but what Reese has been able to do is pull out the audio from the video I did of the interview and um he spliced it in there so that little trick of uh, a little test for you guys to see where he's actually done that um that's enough for me really enjoyed my chat with uh, Johannes lovely guy and such a doing some amazing things there at Dantonia. um check them out um google them and see what they are doing natural seconds farming Multi-species pasture cropping, um, lots of you know animal impact and ro- rotational grazing, and um, and just a lovely, lovely community and lovely bloke. So I hope you enjoy this chat with Johannes Meyer as much as I did on the regenerative journey. Johannes, we are <clears throat> we're here after a bit of hoo ha. Welcome to the regenerative journey, and welcome to. Uh what do you call this beautiful little cabin we're sitting in at the moment?
0: We call this the Bush Hut. The Bush Hut. Yeah. And thank you for having me on and
2: oh, it's a pleasure to be with you today. It's great. mari well, can come forward a little. Let's right. Just need to get a little chair, another half a foot forward. And <clears throat> that's it. We'll line up, up. that's better. See that mug of yours? Perfect. Um the bush hut. Do you have to like get special permission to come down here?
0: Or- <laughs> <Is> <laughs> <No>. like- <laughs> <laughs> no. It's a great place to relax. It's, uh, Beautiful, special for me because this was the first place where um, we heard the reed warbler after the drought. Really? And you're I'm sure you know Charlie Massey's book called "The Reed Warbler." Yeah. Um, so you,
2: so you, this, it's it's native to this area. Yeah. And you and you heard, How did you know that was it? Did you go? That's an unusual. Actually, well. you had
0: a twitcher come down and identify for me.
2: Because you went, there's something, there's a noise down yeah, here. there's
0: a bird, a bird here.
2: So when was that? How yeah, long ago was that? It
0: was about three years ago. Really?
2: Did you get to see him? Did yeah. you see the? Yeah. yeah well, now it?
0: they live in, in the reeds there.
2: Wow. This beautiful, is, beautiful. for those who, ooh, hang on, what I'm going to do, I haven't plugged my little mic thing in there yet, have I? Oh, it's good. Yeah, it a crack. Um, for those who, are, I'm a bit, always a bit nervous about moving the camera. Actually, I'll give it a quick little go, a little scan. We're sitting in a in the bush hut, which is a beautiful timber hut right on the edge of a dam, and there's reeds there, kambungy there,
3: mm-hmm.
2: surrounding the little dam, and that's where the reed warblers are hanging out. That's fascinating. <clears throat> I don't know if I re- would recognise one if I saw one. Um but as you alluded to, Charlie Massey called the Reed Warbler his um his signature um to most people, he's written a few other books, but signature work which um, Hamish McCoy would say was the um uh the what did he say last night it was the it's it was a sort of the Pivotal. Pivotal, pivotal moment. What, yeah. It mm. was a moment where you know there was um acknowledgement There was the the highlighting of farmers and then the real um, getting out to the world, (coughs) that regenerative farming, what it was and where it came from and why it was here. That would have been really exciting, going, I've got my own reward.
0: Fantastic. Yeah, absolutely it was. And, you know, we'd been through the drought. Um, This whole valley had been, you know, dry. This dam was empty um, during the drought right down to the bottom. Mm-hmm. And to see it rehydrated and the reeds back and the reed warbler to to come along. Pretty cool.
2: So were there any reeds here at all? Ladies got it. What?
0: They would have been before the drought, but they were not yeah, they would have been grazed grazed down, grazed
2: down and smacked and, down. And, and, just, and there yeah. wasn't much left after wow. that drought. You can hear some thunder no right doubt there. We um <laughs> We got down here a while ago. Um, it was raining. We there was no key. Well, we didn't. We didn't think we need the key. It was raining, so we were, let's go inside. Um, you had us burned up the hill, get the, got the key. We got set up, got the little electric Jenny going, and then it wasn't gonna be good. We didn't didn't fire or didn't wasn't quite gonna do the thing. So he's been up the hill a third time to go and get the um the other Jenny, which you can't hear. It's up, up the back there. That's fantastic. So I really appreciate the effort. Oh, but what a fantastic spot. Um so looking out here, I mean you've already alluded to sort of significance of this little hut and what has happened here and the somewhat of a discovery. What else, um, Johannes, is there that, that is significant about what we're looking at? What does it conjure up? Is this, is this somewhat a happy place for you?
0: It is. If you think about uh, property as a property as an organism, which I do, right, and there's always a heart of an organism, and I think the heart rests in this valley. We're sort of at the top of the valley, but going down towards the creek. Um, there's, there's just a lot of life. Uh, and a lot of water moving uh, on the surface and under the surface. And, um, yeah, it's just a special place on the property.
2: And we're looking, obviously we're in a bit of a riparian zone here. I mean, is it a good example of, I mean, I can see some trees on that little ridge. Mm -hmm. You guys planted that? Yeah. Yeah. And then obviously the rehydration of this and what you're probably doing upstream a little bit, um, you've got good ground cover. I mean, this is a wonderful little snapshot.
3: Mm.
2: But I mean, I, you know, I haven't been all over the place, but it looks at dantonia here. But what a what a what a wonderful example of what can be done. You know, yeah. do, do do you remember this twenty something years ago? Oh yeah.
0: So the whole valley was um, well well to back up. We bought the place and. 1999, I actually only got here in 2004, but the place was just grazed to the ground. There was almost no trees. Um, it was during the millennial drought, mm. granted, so it was tough times. You know, sub, sub-average sub rainfalls, but um, really a degraded landscape that, that even when rain came, it didn't really respond too well, if you can picture that. Oh, totally. So it's just
2: yeah a lot of people would look at that and go, "Oh, why'd you want to buy
4: that mm. what was the what was the attraction
0: yeah good, good question. so actually um our community sent I think three or four of our guys down to to have a look at what was available, and I think one of the government agencies put together a list of thirty properties, you know, maybe between Queensland and um, Brisbane and Sydney sort of in inland a little bit. Yeah. And they went and looked at all those different properties, and they were somewhat taken when they saw the property the first time. But after they'd gone through the whole 30, um, and they circled up and said, you know, what are we thinking, um, they came back to this one. And, um, look, it was kind of a feel thing. Uh, we could have been closer to the coast, or it was greener, more trees uh, could have been north or south, but they came here and they felt like you know this is this is the right place to be. Um, so I can't really explain it better than that, but that that's what happened. And we um, purchased the place and um, with the idea of having a forming community.
2: Yeah, yeah. When you say yeah. we, we're, we're talking about the Bruderhof yeah, Christian the Bruderhof. community. yeah.
0: Yep. So it's an international Christian community movement. Um, mainly based in the states, but we have representation in uh, England, Germany, Austria, um, Paraguay, Paraguay, yeah. Um, Korea, Saudi so, yeah, Arabia, Israel. So there's a few different places where we are. Um,
2: this the only one in Australia? The only community yeah, in Australia? This, yeah.
0: is the, this is the only community we we have here currently.
2: Can and can I say because we've just to put one those those little ones that just those birds that just went into that roo- those roots about. 20 of them just went zip, little little things, tiny uh, things. When are those roots over there.
0: Yeah, they could be diamond backed, uh diamond firetails or something. Wow, like
2: that. they just went zip, mm. hid hiding there. We just put things into context why I'm here. Hamish McCoy and I have just done a two-day introduction to the biodynamics workshop um, here at Danthania, and it was absolutely wonderful. We had a wonderful group of people. We had um, Norman is in, I think he said he's... Nearly eighty, yeah, just over eighty, maybe. What a
0: what a lovely bloke! That's great.
2: (laughs) When I was saying about his complexion, he was like, "That guy has seriously good skin, doesn't Uh, he?" Um, Must be the biodynamics he's been doing for thirty years. And then we had. uh, Jeffrey uh, McCosker who I think is 18 or so 17 I mean it was a lovely group you know array of people by a diverse group of people um, like a good pasture and um, and you, the hospitality has been absolutely wonderful I said to you half jokingly at the end can I grab some of your boys and like take them to everyone because it was seamless everything just rolled and happened and it was just fantastic so that's why we're here and I've taken the opportunity to steal Johannes down here for, for, for as long as we can before either the rain drives us out, or the dark, or the thunder, or something. Um, so, and and I say back to the community that it, the you know it was as I said at the end of today was such a lovely feeling of humanity, of of natural like it's a it's just a, it seems to be a lovely way um, to live. It was it's so cohesive and um, uh, and we've just felt so welcome. So, you know, thank you thank you for the hosting and, and um and and um and having us here for the two days. And what a joy this rain is, eh? Mm, beautiful. How many meals in it you reckon?
0: Uh so far a few.
2: Really? Yeah, some heavy pour downpours. Fight. Yeah. yeah fight that'll it we'll take it. Um mm. let's go back, um, Johannes, to where it all began. Mm. Day one. Little Man appeared in the world. Where where did that all happen? Can we go back yeah, that far?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So I was born, actually born in Connecticut um, and then moved to New York, upstate New York when I was two years old and grew up there um, and really grew up very close to the land.
2: Um, on the land? Close to the land. On the land. On the land, yeah. In the land. Yeah. In the yep.
0: forest. On streams, on horseback, um, beautiful childhood. And my father was always raising animals. He raised cattle, not on the scale we do here, you know, maybe 20 head, maybe 10 head. He raised pigs. Um, he planted trees. We planted a lot of trees with him. And um, he taught us how to work, work hard, um, and was just very committed and had a deep love for for landscape, for um, ecosystems. And uh, although he may not have said it like that, he, he kind of set the tone for me. And um, so I picked that up <clears throat> really from him. But um, I could probably take it even further back and tell you a little bit about about his upbringing and, mm. and even before that. So tally, Let's do it. Should we do that? Yeah, totally. So uh, the Bruderhof... Movement actually started back in 1920 and it began as a forming community. So you had a very small group of people on a very burned out piece of land. Sound familiar? Trying to (laughs) eke out a living, right? And (laughs) whereabouts? uh, It was in um, Zanertz, Germany, which is sort of central Germany. Yeah. Um, And the inspiration was to get away from the big cities, get back on the land and to live out the teachings of Christ to the best of, uh, of their ability.
2: And, and that was in the 1920s? So? 1920. So that was? Um, so it was just post-World War, 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 yeah, World war well, One,
0: yeah. And um, so that had a big influence. There was a lot of men on the, walking around on the roads in those days, sort of homeless, homeless guys who had fought in the war and probably had PTSD and who knows what. And um, there was a, a large segment of the youth of that time that were seeking for something genuine and meaningful for their lives. You know, they were kind of fed up with war. They were fed up with middle-class life. They wanted to go back to roots and, and figure out life. What, what did it genuinely mean to be a person? And um, interestingly, 1924 is when Rudolf Steiner sort of kicked off with his, his thing, right? Yeah, so,
4: yeah.
0: Anyways, um, and even back in those days, the, um, the community pioneered, um, ideas like like shelter belts um and you know thinking far ahead in terms of land management and improving the quality of the soil and uh, so then it wasn't too long before Hitler came to power and the community um was under serious you know stress and persecution um rage by the Nazi soldiers and it just escalated and got worse until um, the community was expelled from Germany
2: and they were persecuted because they represented a threat because they, you, it was like a, a self-sustaining community you oh, had, it yeah. yeah, was like we don't want you doing that <coughs> stuff you well, to be-
0: <laughs> right so you had to be um, completely uh, obedient Subservient to, to Hitler yeah. and the community made it very clear that God was, was the, the one that had their allegiance and um, that just didn't match. So then they were su- suspect. Uh, so
2: that was quite a. And that was. That was a f- little while before the Second World War.
3: He was at it for a yeah. while, wasn't he? That was
0: actually the raid started. I think in nineteen uh, thirty-five. Right. And the ex and expulsion was in nineteen thirty-seven. So that was a good three years before the war actually began. Um, and it was very fortuitous. At the time of the, the closing down of the community, two American or Canadian uh, ministers from another church were meet were um, were visiting them, and it was a church that we we had actually joined with at that time, the Hutterites. And um,
4: because they were there, uh,
0: they weren't loaded into buses and taken to the concentration camp. But because uh-huh. they saw these two Americans, they didn't want to stir up the pot with the, you know, across the ocean, the war hadn't started yet. Um, they actually said, okay, we'll let you go. Get out of the country in 24 hours.
2: Wow. Leave your homes.
0: Everything. No, you could take us an upset.
2: How many people are you talking How many people had to? No, we're
0: talking 100 people at least.
2: Had to get yeah. out of there.
0: Uh, wow. So. You couldn't just,
2: like, book a plane out of there the next day on no. Webjet, though, could you?
0: No. Those trains. Wow. Trains and boats. So then um, then the next part of the farming story sort of starts. So they found a, a very run-down farm in um, the Cotswold area of England.
2: So they were welcomed there? They Hogan? were welcomed there.
0: Yeah. Yep. They were taken because they were refugees and and were able to purchase a, a property there, um, a large but very run-down farm, and... Um, the stipulation was that they had to bring that farm from grade four, which it was, to grade one, which would be the, the highest level. And they set about doing that. The, uh, the brothers that were farmers at the time there, and and some of them had studied agronomy and and so on. And actually, in the four years that they lived at that community, they brought that farm from grade four to grade one. And it was a really... Massive transformation, and they also built up a whole community. But in the interim period, World War II started, and you had English members mm. because there was a lot of English people joining the community. And then you had the Germans, and they were living together, and that was <clears throat> not acceptable to the English government. So a oh, wow. decision was then had to be made: do we intern the German brothers and sisters? <laughs> For the length of the war, do we all leave the country together? Our church is a pacifist church.
4: We don't serve in the military. Part of our faith. So
0: the only country that would accept, at that time during the war, the only country that would accept pacifists was Paraguay. Really? country in uh, South America, right? Nestled there below Brazil and above Argentina. And so it was, a, it was kind of just crazy. It was a step in faith. They had to pack up everything, get onto these boats that were going down to South America to bring meat back to Britain for the war, feed the troops. And went zigzagging across the ocean to escape the submarines, and over a period of about a year, they all moved down there wow. and landed landed on this property with no dwellings, um, just swamp. Jungle Savannah. It's 20,000 acre property. And had to carve out a life for themselves uh, with very little. Um, Do so they,
2: they have to buy the property? Was it like a, like you're a yeah, refugee, so you can have it? Or what was
0: the. I think the sale of the property in. Um, they, they decided to sell the property yeah. in Hotspur. Yeah. And, yeah. and used those finances to. They probably also had some helpful donors um, yeah. that took. Took uh, pity on, on them. So, and then that's about the time that my, well, my father was born in, in England. Sorry, he was born in Germany. Let me back up. He was two weeks old when the community was expo- expulsed out of Germany. So he was a very small little baby uh, of two weeks old. Wow. Went to Ger- uh, England. England. The first four years of his life were in England, and then moved to Paraguay with his family. And... In Paraguay, that it was a very uh, farm-based community, right? So they had cattle. Property came with probably a couple thousand head of cattle, um, but they had to start, you know, dairy, you know, eggs, garden, grow their own food. I mean, they literally were out in and in, uh, in the boom docks.
4: Build their own houses. Build their right? own houses, wow. you know,
0: the whole bit. So that's how my dad grew up, and he. Um, did a lot of work with cattle on horseback at the time, so connection there. And then, as he, I think, at the age of sixteen, he left the community and work, went and worked on an estancia, which is the same as a station here. On mm. uh, you know, morning to to night in a saddle and and worked for probably four years on a on a large station.
2: And he moved to that station over there. Because that's he'd reached a certain age, and, yeah, and, and that was just what happened. He just uh, wanted to of, try something
0: different. Yeah, and yeah. Um, we encourage you know, our young people to do that, and all the way through. It's a good, good idea to get perspective and yeah. experience. So, so that was good. Eventually, came back, and, and then, you know, twenty years after we went to, to Paraguay, we then realized it was just it was too isolated, and moved out of there and, and up to America. And that's sort of where the, the main um, grouping of our people are.
2: So got through the war, I guess. Then in that okay, yep. so stay down there, and then the dust settled elsewhere, and then away to move up there. And where, whereabouts in the states?
0: So eastern eastern US, so upstate New York, mm-hmm. uh, Connecticut, Pennsylvania.
2: Oh, then you came along.
0: Mm. Yep. and then I was born mm. nineteen seventy.
2: See, and your grandfather was—he was in Germany. He was there. Obviously, if your father was born there, your, yep. part of your family was 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 you know, already a part of that community back then. Yeah. So you're so your is the is the so you're one of the I guess f- founding families. Is that fair to say? Is there? Well, there are lots of yeah. families there. Yep. How many? I mean, there was a lot lot of families. But yeah. Part look, of that?
0: You know, there's. I think it started with seven. Wow. People. Yeah. And then it grew from there. So, yeah, both sides of my family um, were part of that. Yeah. It was early, you know, the first decade of the community.
3: Yeah. yeah. Wow. And so, um,
2: 1970, you, you turned up. And so we get back to your horses, mm. forest, trees, cows,
4: mm-hmm. farm. Yeah. And faith. Yeah. I, um, so I grew up, you know,
0: and it was it was just beautiful, beautiful childhood, um, surrounded by, you know, people that I had a great respect for, both my own relatives and people who weren't my relatives, which is a beautiful thing too. And um, then got to high school, went through high school, and then and during my high school years, I, um, I was. Quite concerned about uh, sort of civil rights, and also quite concerned about what was happening in in Central America.
4: And um,
0: at the time, I actually thought, "Well, look, I'll I'll go down to El Salvador and help these people that are that are suffering." Well, that was just sort of what I wanted to do. But <clears throat> I got the advice, "Look, if you go down there, you have a cross on your back." Mm. you'll just get blown up.
2: And what was happening down there? Excuse um, my ignorance. What was the sort so of... So the-
0: America uh, and the CIA were um, causing arrest. unrest and a lot of land was being taken away from peasants who had farmed it for hundreds of years. And, you know, there was just this, this conflict between power and poverty.
2: Was it? There, there, there a drug tried
3: mixed that up in that? Yeah. Um, that? came later. Yeah, right.
0: That came later. There's also, I don't know if you've heard of an archbishop called Oscar Romero. He was an archbishop at the time, and he actually was assassinated because he sided with the poor and tried to help them. Yeah, well, so that was a, yeah. an inspiration to me. Anyways, I, did, I didn't end up going there, but I went. Um, there there's an organization in California that worked uh, for the rights of farm workers, and mo- most of these farm workers are people that come across the border from Mexico and, and further south. His name was Cesar Chavez, and I worked with his organization for a period, um, basically trying to improve their lot and trying to get rights for them and involved in all sorts of um, different activities like grape boycotts to try and force the growers to um, give basic rights to these people. So to give an idea of what kind of rights we're talking about, like having a toilet where you work, Not being sprayed with herbicides while you're picking fruit, (laughs) Um, having a house to sleep in, you know, having a lunch break. Wow! So these were the basic rights that we were trying to uh, to help help uh, bring in. So that that was a a pretty formative uh, period in my life. But as I as I went through that, um, the place where I'd come from began to make more and more sense, like why my parents and grandparents had chosen to to live in a community with the set of values they live with, and it all kind of came together, and it actually made sense, and I felt look that's where i need to need to go and How
2: many know. years between <clears throat> leaving there and then then it was doing so that full circle it yeah. wasn't
0: that long it was eighty eight to eighty nine yeah right and I was straight out of high school. So I was young and and also had a lot of fun, by the way. Was, mm. It was a great, great experience.
2: So high school um, within the community or? Yeah. Uh, no, yeah. I went to public high school. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: We used to do that and yeah. very good experience. Yeah. Meet other people, make other friends. Yeah. Um, see what's going on. But yeah, that's, that sounds good. And uh, But then I came back
4: and um, at the time the community – Needed male nurses, so I had the grades. So the uh,
0: somebody said, "Hey, can you can you study nursing?" Which was actually
2: uh, at uh, age what? what? What age were you then? Twenty. <clears throat> okay, yeah, a couple of years out, and then back. so
0: I was, and, and it wasn't something I would have chosen to do mm. at all. But I the community needed it, and I thought, "Hey, fair enough,
4: give it a go." And um, did that. And actually,
0: after that, you know, and and at the time, my uncle, who was um, in the leadership, told me, look, because I wanted to study farming and forestry. That was my passion. He said, look, you can figure out farming and forestry. Just do this, you know, because we need this. So I said, fair enough. Mm -hmm. Do that. And um, so then I worked in. After I graduated, um, worked in primary care, so like GP type setting, and also worked on pre-hospital ambulance as a paramedic and, and and that kind of work. So I did a lot of that over the next ten years. So that was different, and a lot of experience there no. with with people and with suffering and uh. and that sort.
2: I guess a bit of you know the worst. Well, it's not the worst type of suffering, but kind of the the terminal type of suffering. A bit fair, but you know yeah. that as well. Yeah. What was the? What do you think it was after those couple of years away? I mean, did you need those few years away to then be able to look back at <clears throat> perspective, give you a different perspective, and go, mm-hmm. you know what? It was a reference point that you circle back to. What was? Yeah, absolutely. It like-
0: I think I needed. I needed. To get away and to see what else was out there,
4: right, and then to make my draw
0: my own conclusions about how to live my life. You know, I guess it's a bit like coming of age, or, you know, you never want someone to do something because their dad did it, or because somebody else did it, but you actually want to live your life based on what you feel, what I feel is is right and true for me, and um, so that. That it was pivotal pivotal in that way
4: and, and very good. Yeah, so... Nursing.
0: Nursing, you know.
4: Within the community?
0: Within, um, yeah. Yeah. The, obviously, the ambulance work was in the locality. Extreme. Yeah. Rural, rural area. Um, and then, eventually got married. <laughs> uh, it was a blessing.
4: Married to my wife, Ann, and and uh, we had four kids, beautiful kids. And um, eventually um, we moved to England also
0: to help out in the um, the clinic over there, the community.
2: So the, the, there was another community established over there at yeah, some
0: yeah. point. Yeah, been there for a while.
2: <clears throat> did, did, the, did the Paraguay, when, when everyone left there, did, did that split kind of thing? Did they, some go to the States and some go yeah, there? Yeah, so they
0: went, you know, <clears throat> like in our you can imagine either imagine our community a bit like a Catholic order or like the military. So Mm. if you're needed somewhere, then that's where you go. Mm. And that's a commitment, a voluntary commitment you make when you join is that you're willing to, to support and go wherever you're needed Mm. and give all your energies, Mm. um, you know, for, for that. And that's just part and parcel of, uh, of who we are. so, went over there for three years, and then um
4: in the meantime, the
0: community in in Australia had begun, and so I came into Australia on my nursing license yeah right. all right back in those days, it was fairly easy to um to immigrate on a on a skilled visa, and um nurses are shoe at least they were. I think they still are. Anyway.
2: Yeah. They're, they're highly so, sought after.
0: So here I was in Australia, and I was tasked with taking on the farm and and uh, and the avatar.
4: Wow! And uh, so that's what I've been doing for the last what is it,
0: eighteen, nineteen years. Nineteen years, yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah.
2: When when you say the farm, <clears throat> I guess <clears throat> the community is on the farm. So the farm is a large part of it because there's <clears throat> obviously food production. There's Acres, there's um, lots of activity, um, different enterprises. Yeah, the 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 farm is a major part of the community, just geographically. But I guess the interaction and the I mean, it's <clears throat> the support that the farm gives to the community through food production and mm. you know nature and just the setting and the sanctuary that it is. Um, that's a that's a big job. Uh, if you yeah. know, I imagine. Right, and so the responsibility.
0: You know, you look at the community, and and there's there's many responsibilities to to keep it all going. You know, there's a business. Like, if I can just back up, so when we mm. first bought the place, the vision was, hey, let's uh, let's go back to having a farming community, a community that can actually be supported by the land by the farm.
2: Which was all had always been the intention of the, the previous. Um uh, iterations of the community in well, Paraguay, not, and
0: more by necessity, maybe. <clears throat> yeah, I mean that's really all they had. Yep. Um, I think we've always had craftsmanship built into our community. So, whether it's turning bowls in Paraguay or you know building farming gear um, in England, yeah. and gates and you know hay hay bale stackers and things like that back in the sixties. There's always been a component of, of manufacturing, and I think it's important to understand that when you have a community, you really need to have meaningful work for everybody, mm. and that includes people that are very able and also includes disabled people, old people, young yeah. people so you, so farming is a part of that, but it'll never, it'll never give you know that full.
2: So a complement um, of complement of, of, what, of work yeah.
0: and, and um, so anyways um, and that first attempt at at forming here in Australia with very different conditions than anything we're used to before but also a degraded landscape flopped it was unsuccessful
2: what 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 does unsuccessful look like
0: it, it looks like less money at the end of the year than the beginning for one thing uh it looks like, you know, crop failure, sheep that cost more to run than than returned. Um, and granted, you know, there wasn't a lot of experience there for that, and that came slowly, but I think also we, we plunged in with a conventional mindset. And that's an important part of the story, so I think you could almost say the farming back in the 19, late 1920s, early 30s, and then in Paraguay would, could be termed a regenerative sort of farming, even though it didn't carry that name. But then the community moved to um, the States, and the Green Revolution was was firing up, and we just went along with that. Yeah, I think we actually moved away from sort of the organic or regenerative type practice and were just taken up with the new green revolution and, and it seemed to work beautiful and, and why not and then we also segued more into manufacturing as our main our main income and so coming back here we just kind of stuck in and began to farm conventionally like our neighbors did and like the agronomist told us from the elders All right
2: this is your schedule of
0: <coughs> this is what you stuff. do you know here's your prescriptive uh, dose of whatever side it was. So, yeah, so when I came, when I arrived in 2004, it was clear that we couldn't run this place conventionally. It was not going to work out. And most of the property had been leased out because we just didn't know what to do. And we needed some kind of a return. But we could see that, you know, the property being leased was making it, it was degrading it even further because that's generally what what happens or can happen. So then really started the hard work of figuring out, well, what do we do? How, how do we, you know, I wasn't even thinking regeneration. I was thinking how do we even make this work? Yeah. You know? And, um, so.
2: Well, and why you? Like, like you, you, you had farm experience. You liked forests and trees and cows. And then you know you came over here as a nurse. Did you come over here knowing you were going to be sort of on responsible for farm? Or, yep. you, Yeah. Okay. Yep. And then, and then how was was that a <laughs> was that was there a recruitment process? You know, back in England, and they go, "Oh, Hannah, do you know about cows? How about you go there?" Or there's a job ad going. Yeah. Like, look, what I, was the? I'm not
0: sure. It? I just I just got picked. I'm not. <laughs> Not sure what the okay, vetting, so it was it process was. More, it was,
2: was more of a you're needed over there. You're needed.
0: Yeah. Okay. Um. So get going. Yeah. And then off we went, and it was it was a beautiful thing. I was really happy to do it, um, and just get stuck into it. So, interestingly enough, in 1999, preparing for Y2K.
2: No, that's you remember right. that? Yeah, yeah, The world was yeah. going to stop. Yeah, the, yeah, that's it. All the computers so, going to go down. So our
0: communities were sort of concerned about right. that, yeah. and uh, myself and and one of the other guys were tasked with just looking into, can we graze a few animals, um, you know, and can we grow a bit of oats, and can we kind of get our feet wet in farming again? This community that I was on prior was pretty much just manufacturing. So um part of that was we took a trip him and me and we went and visited three different farms that were grazing holistically right so that was my first sort of ever exposure to grazing management i hadn't even thought of it before
2: and where which concept which where were they pennsylvania I okay so this
0: is back in the states in pennsylvania and so um and that you know i loved it it was exciting but then i you know life moved on we didn't Y2K came and went, and we were all still there. And uh, but then I found myself down here and remembering, suddenly remembered that that day, and began looking and thinking and digging, and came across Alan Savory and holistic grazing management, and um, actually Judy Earle, um, at the time was a holistic instructor, and and she came here and and got me going on, you know, the grazing charts on you know wall charts on the on paper, and on the tricks of grazing management, and read the books and the manual, and that was our first, our first step.
2: And what, when you say manual, you said you, there was um, holistic management Alan Savory's. Um, yeah, there's a there's a, of, uh, like a textbook yeah, and then a manual that's with it, yeah. more detailed, yeah. sort of prescriptive. So you yeah. had those two as as your yep. textbooks, and Judy's guidance.
0: Judy's guidance, she was excellent. And um, just took about 100 hectares out of the 2,300. The rest was leased and just began to experiment. Had 50 head of cattle. Um, Just steers, we were raising for slaughter and began to measure and graze and learn. And um, a couple years later, and, and, and I was also measuring you know conventional grazing outside of that mm. just to have something to reference with
2: when you say measuring you're measuring um how much grass was there what was eaten yeah
0: so yeah. it's a simple formula based on the weight of the animal um and their average daily gain rate and that dictates how much grass they've eaten sort of an accepted mm. industry norm um, in terms of DSEs or kilos of dry dry matter so And then came a dry period and, you know, half year of of dry and we found that the paddocks that we were grazing holistically were actually producing 50% more biomass than the other paddocks. And so I showed it to the other guys and I said, look, you know, I think we have something here and other people are doing this and they're finding the same thing. Can we expand? And so we did. We took on another couple hundred hectares, slowly still releasing out most of the property and continued like that. And then around about that time there was a there was an Australian story that featured a man from Bylong Valley called Peter Anders.
3: Yep.
2: <laughs> yep.
0: So we contacted No, actually first we purchased his book.
2: Oh uh, yeah, Back from the Brink?
0: Back from the Brink and read that. That was exciting. And then we managed to get in contact with him and had him come up and um, actually had a a wonderful relationship with him over the years, and... um, When was this, like this is? 2006. Okay, yep. Cool. Yep. So, and and began, you know, slowly. Uh, We never jumped into anything, just pell-mell, but we tested ideas and put in a little contour bank. Dabbled? observe it, dabbled with it, and observed the, the results. And um, property was still. Most of the property had lousy fencing. Uh, it's just, and the paddocks were degraded, and, and there there's a few little bright spot, bright spots, but not much. So then, um, 2007, the CMA at the time, catchment management authority, was making money available for, you know. Bringing farms up to speed, you know, they they gave money for a farm planning course, and then <clears> they, once the plan was there, then they would help fund on a 50-50 basis the infrastructure that was needed to make the farm viable. And um, so that was that was beautiful. We were able to put in, you know, many kilometers of fencing. We we're able to plant thirty thousand trees. we were able to put in. Um, water points, 50 water points across the property. So it was massive, uh, a massive year. We were able to sow um, multi-species, perennial pastures into all our cropping country. Incidentally, they all died later because the soil was really degraded. But we did all that work. And, um, and, and actually had, at the end of that, we actually had the tools the infrastructure to able to manage the whole property mm. holistically or you know management intensive grazing put in the new stockyards you know all of that and so a th-
2: number of different things
0: a bunch of stuff yeah a bunch of stuff but it really you know put us in a place where we could actually manage the place correctly
2: was it aimed towards and encouraging people to take on the holistic management kind of stuff or you just apply that to the, to the project
0: yeah, so actually run by the catchment management people, they were primarily concerned about catchment health and and the money that was going out to the different farms involved was to sort of create ground cover, to create some health in in the whole catchment so that you know there'd be some more some more resilience, but it wasn't specifically focused at holistic grazing management or or any other modalities. It was more of a broad um what can we do to help our catchment, which in- included planting trees? It in- included um, planting pasture into cropping country. you know it included you know, fencing and and also fencing out the creek, mm. and that's why they paid for the water, um, was to keep cattle and grazing animals out of the creek and allow it to rehabilitate and slow the flow and and all that. So that was sort of their goal. But of course, they were happy with uh grazing management as a tool in that space
2: yeah. um I'm just wondering whether we might have missed a bit of that. We might look um, i have got a feeling that some of that might have been missed at the end there, so just just go back over to peter andrews so you 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 saw Australian story, read mm. the book, yep. got him here, implemented a number of the you know some contouring
0: yeah
2: did you do some of the um not just contouring, but within the creek, putting the 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 leaky weirs and that sort of actually riparian not, zone <clears throat> stuff.
0: Not really, no, because <clears throat> um, it's a fourth order stream, and, and you can't really do that. Uh, do that. Mm. Um, would have liked to, but not possible. So we we actually worked higher in the catchment, you know, um, up here in the valleys and and the first order sort of streamlets.
4: Um, and sort of wet our teeth there. Um,
0: but that, you know, was just another important tool, well, and it, but it didn't answer the whole challenge of restoring landscape.
2: So what did it, what did it do? What changes did you see having put that in, in place? I mean, it may be hard to sort of identify because there were other factors potentially, but what were some of the – what was restored? What was the, right. the, the outcomes there?
0: So, number one, I would say fencing out the creek allowed it to reestablish itself for vegetation to grow, for shrubs, trees. Um, you put a few from, deciduous... Prior to that, obviously, it was dry, right? And the cattle all go to the creek. That's where the last bits of forage are growing, and it was just a grazed-out mess, frankly. And every time it rained, it eroded more soil, and, and mm. you know, it was just a bad cycle. Um, higher in the landscape, uh, we put in one test... Uh, Level level contour, and um, when it did fill, and then allow you know ir- subsoil irrigation, we actually had a measurable increase per year in um, grass produced. So we could show that you know above that bank was sent so, so much grass produced per hectare, and below was you know an extra ton, let's say mm, cool. per hectare. And so we we knew that yeah, this is this is doing something, mm. but nothing was like flashing lights. You know, progress is, is incremental. Um, I've found in the Australian landscape, and, and with the weather patterns we have, and so on. So it's it's step by step, um, slow by slow.
2: And um, uh, what was the next sort of phase or, or practice that you you put in place then? And when, when where are we up to here in the in the chronologically? Yeah, so we're
0: probably around two thousand eight here.
3: Yeah, um, two
0: thousand nine was another very dry year. Mm. And so started thinking about soils. Started thinking a lot about soils. And I began approaching, you know, a lot of different people to help us with our soils. And one of them was uh was Bart Davidson. He wasn't with Maya at that point yet, but he was a soil consultant and we had him in for a couple of days and had him do an assessment on the place and, and give some advice that was helpful. Also looked at, um, you know, the Neil Kinsey soil balancing approach to soils, um, where you test your soils, identify what's missing, and then get expert advice on how to how to replace what's missing physically. And so I, I, we took the soil samples. You had to send them to the states to a special lab. Had went through all of that. Got the results back. And the prescription was going to cost me 2500 bucks. Was, prescri-
2: was it prescription? Sell, <laughs> sell your farm.
0: <laughs> we were like, we buy some more land. <laughs> uh, yeah, how much was it? 2500 bucks a hectare.
2: For the Amelia and the to, things to that you to, to balance out with a bit of this and a bit of that and a bit of whatever. Lime,
0: gypsum, whatever.
2: Um, My goodness.
0: It was just out of reach. It was not economical, obviously, you know, at that point in time land cost about that. That's right. Um, land was a lot cheaper back in those days. So, you know, that that, that didn't happen, obviously. And then it began to play around with Bart Bart was into the compost idea, so we bought some um there's a fellow called Bruce Picone who is doing composted fertilizer out near Moree. And so we began playing with that. And um and it was successful you know we we saw we saw a response but we were still using um by that time we'd gone back to growing forage oats in winter monoculture we were still spraying herbicides um, for knockdown we were still using conventional uh, salt paste fertilizers to to nourish the crop but we were also putting in the compost and um so yeah It was step by step. And and during those years, let's say from 2009 till, you know, maybe, maybe 2014, um, we kind of noticed that everything sort of plateaued. Despite our efforts, despite doing what we thought was pretty darn good grazing management, you know, we, you know, the, the increase in productivity just stopped. We weren't seeing more species coming up in our pastures, you know, and um around about that time, I believe um, Bart had gone over uh to Maya, and that whole process was beginning the Maya grazing platform, and we were working with him
4: uh, with that process and
0: trying to figure out, you know, how that would look and how it would work for us and other graziers. And that was a fascinating period. But, you know, just in the back of my mind, you know, we, we just knew we weren't actually making the progress we needed to make. And then along came 2017. And in 2017, I made contact with... Christine Jones, and she came out to the property and had a look around, and we had a long talk.
2: Sorry, what year was that? 20, 2017.
0: 79, yeah. And she talked about biology, soil biology, and plant diversity. And the way she explained it, the way she um, you know, educated me around those two two key things was... was a major light bulb moment for me. And we actually then did a did a field day here at D'Antonio where I think a couple hundred people showed up and we had Christine talk to us about that those topics. That
2: oh, was 2018. It was
0: 2018, Wasn't so it, a I bit think. later. 19. Yeah, yeah, I see. So, and that was just a pivotal pivotal moment for us. Um, and during the, the previous couple of years, I'd been... Um, doing some some testing with biological products, and um, found that yes, you could measure a massive increase in soil fungal population and in the diversity of the soil bio- biological community um, when you at- use biological amendments, and also that in control plots and and um, plots that were treated with conventional fertility, we were not seeing that response. So that was another tick. Yes, it's true.
4: It's measurable. Another thing so it pushed us in, in, in the
0: direction. Um, so 2018, we had that field day. We were already sliding into drought. And that drought proved to be incredibly challenging as it was for all Australian farmers. It was an incredibly challenging period, very stressful and very difficult um, to see the landscape just degrade. And we actually thought, you know, we were pretty good grazing managers, (laughs) right? We had a plan. We based it on the worst possible rainfall uh, going back 100 years. And we You're
4: very conservative in your... Conservative, reduced
0: our numbers. We just had 220 breeders. That was all we held on 2,300 hectares We thought we were in pretty good shape. But that drought was, you know, I think the worst prior rainfall was in the 400 mils, somewhere in there, and this drought was 272 mils in that year. And that just did us. And we had to buy hay at great expense as most other farmers did too, carried cattle through and fed them and got to the point where we couldn't buy more hay and set the dates for the trucks to come and locked in the first truck. And the day we loaded them, the first rain came. We had a big rainfall event, and so we could cancel the future shipments and hung on to those, so that was about as close as you want to get. Um, that we could hang on to that <clears throat> those breeders which were uh Kit Farrow blood bloodline.
2: Mm. I wanna to get to that part.
0: <clears throat> So you know, we we got through it but it left some scars. And um
2: What did you learn what what what, what did you learn in that process that you've now changed, implemented, mitigate against?
0: Yeah, so I think we'll be more cautious even even yet, but I think it wasn't so much what did we learn in terms of stocking numbers or grazing, it was that it just increased the drive
4: to to get the soils back into health to build soil carbon to build mm. biological
0: <clears throat> soil communities to build natural capital, you know all those important things that mitigate drought and, and it just just gave me a ton of energy to pursue those with with great, great energy and, and vigor.
2: Because you, I guess, you, you was it that you knew how bad it could be, and you never wanted to go there again. And did you kind of know this is the op- you needed to do this? Otherwise, well, I think you was would
0: that it was that and the knowledge that with a changing climate, the next round could likely be worse.
2: It could be worse, yeah. And right.
0: you know, for the community, the impact was that we ran out of rainwater and had to truck in water from town yeah. for drinking and, and so on. And to see everything dry out, all the dams empty, the, the creek dry, and, to, and, and at the same time knowing that a living system wouldn't do this, you know, um, that there are the functions in the Australian landscape to take you through those droughts if you allow them to express themselves.
2: So it was the landscape was kind of sick. Yeah. had a low
0: yep. Without a
2: immunity. Yeah.
0: And I think still, you know, if I would have to sort of give it a grade of zero to 10, 10, 10 being the best, you know, I think we're still around the four. We're not even halfway there in terms of
4: restoring that vibrant life. So with that in mind, um,
0: you know, that the, the what we had learned from Christine Jones just took on a, a really powerful meaning. And so we went really hard. When that drought broke, we went very hard. We planted as much country as we could to multi-species. We put out as much biological stimulant as we could. We found micronutrient foliar and applied those to the plants where we knew they were deficient. And we got an amazing response. A rapid response and so, for the last three years uh, since the drought broke, um, we've been pursuing those angles, and, but always with an open mind to find you know what what are we missing in our in our toolbox? And there's got to be you know more tools that we can apply and and also very much um, very much keen to to build. The community of farmers that farm regeneratively. to share the knowledge. Um, actually, our local <coughs> Swan Swanvale Landcare group is is working on a project mm-hmm. to rehydrate the Swan Brook. Um, about twelve properties involved in it, and we're slowly working towards that, uh, along with Maloon Institute. So,
2: <coughs> so a catchment level. Yeah, catchment level project.
0: Project that yeah. would address soils. Would potentially. Uh, bring in maloon to do um, works in the creeks you know with with um, permissions from the government you know nothing's really off the table obviously funding is the is the challenge
2: What does the government think about that sort of stuff well there's been a shift
0: and uh, there's been a recognition that maloon has had success in some catchments and um so we're we're hoping that that can can increase and grow, and return um, life to return life to the, life to the uh, streams and rivers of Australia is really what needs to happen. You know, not just in the Swanbrook, but everywhere.
2: Right? So they're not they're not thinking it's too wacky that they reckon it's there's something in it.
0: No, it, because it's actually been validated scientifically, yeah. and they've had their scientists onto it. And yeah, well, I, I don't think it's a shoe in yet, but it's. No. There, there's the doors are opening, mm. and the you know the, the work is happening.
2: So, with the toolbox, what what else is there? Are there are you aware of what's missing? Is there you know mm-hmm. some practices that you know of, heard of, seen data on, and going? I want to do that. Yeah, well, I, I think mean? the last
0: two days were. were <laughs> part of that, You know, yeah. um, I think there's something. Definitely that we can take out of, out of the two two days we just had together with biodynamics. Yeah. Um, but that re- wasn't
2: a lot of questions. I wasn't even thinking of that, actually. But, no, uh, but yes, but, good, good.
0: But, <laughs> but I think that, you yeah, <laughs> know, <right>. And, <clears throat> you know, but that, I think, you know, with just the tools that we do have now, you know, and, and these have been applied worldwide, the results have been amazing, astounding. Um, beyond what science is willing to believe is possible.
4: And, and that's pretty cool. Um and that gives me a lot of hope.
0: You know, yes, we have challenges, but also yes, we have tools that can to rise to meet those, providing we're good managers. And um you know, and I think as we heard in the last couple of days, you know, having empathy for for all things living, for the land, for the animals, for the people, um, those are all all
4: those things go together, I think, um, and are part of the package. Um, yeah. Um. So
2: that's interesting. You say you reckon you're you're at four. Mm. I mean, a lot of people would look. We went for a little farm tour yesterday afternoon, didn't we? After the mm. day one, and that was wonderful. You know, the end of the day, beautiful little spot down there where we were. And I wouldn't be many people who reckon you're on a four out of ten. Um, I'm not saying you've been too harsh, but it's just interesting. I mean, it's you know, if and I don't doubt that. If you know, if that's where you feel you need to take it, that's that's fantastic. I mean, I think that's. It's almost a case it feels like, okay, not just here, but a lot of places that I go to or, you know, we're, we, we know of and, <clears throat> like, it's the potential is almost, almost limitless in a way, isn't it? Like, where's, what is it, a 10? We don't even yeah. know what a 10 looks like.
0: Well, I think, you know, we know that historically, you know, you know when white, white settlements started, we know that soil carbon levels were 5 to 10% of soil. Now, you know, on the property here, we would probably average two to two and a half. The Australian average is
4: less than that. Now, just imagine if we could even get it to 5%, right, let alone 10%. Imagine the life productivity and resilience that you'd see in such a landscape, and that's that's the goal. Um,
0: that's the goal that, that we need to be aiming at collectively as, as you know, Australian farming community um, to get there. Look at those rainbows.
4: Is that a rainbow? Is that was that
2: one and then another? Yeah, it almost looks like there's one going that way, one going that way.
0: I think there's two of them, but we they just feed into the cloud there. Eh? Oh, that's incredible. Beautiful.
2: Um, <clears throat> and so where Danthony is positioned. Between Glenness and Inverell, I probably didn't say that earlier on. You know, that's to be a producer of food because ultimately that's what we're doing isn't it, as farmers. Mm. In the process, <clears throat> well, not gives of a chicken or the egg. I mean, you 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 can't help but produce nutritious food if you're looking after the environment like you guys are. You know, so what what's the what is you know the primary motivation? As a farmer, is it to improve the environment and then you grow good food or are you just growing, we want to grow really good food and you have to improve the environment at the same time?
4: Not that that's a chore, but it's like where's the focus in there?
0: Yeah, sure. So for me, um, as a Christian and as a man of faith, I, you know, part of, part of the task you know, that we have, I believe, is, uh, as people on earth is to
4: care for creation. Right um, and you know you can find that in the book of Genesis, which would care for the land, care for the
0: god's creation, and um you know so coming <clears throat> coming to Australia, you know, just to say it was. <clears throat> It was kind of confronting to come into a landscape that was as degraded as, as it was. And, <laughs> well, yeah. But, but not only, yeah. You know, I'm not blaming people. Mm. It's just a different climate as well, and so variable and so hard to manage. I came from a place where, you know, every winter was predictable. Spring came, summer came, autumn came. Rain was there. It was a predictable yearly cycle, with some variability, but mainly just pretty good. Come here and I've yet to see a year that's the same as any other year that I've experienced here. <laughs> and um <clears throat> so that sort of was something I, I was grappling with, right? And then you bring the faith side of it in and say, Well, we're supposed to care for this place. Now why do we care for it? Well, because it sustains, you know, people and animals and it's God's creation. It's
4: precious. It's living. It's it's um
0: it's what he has made. And so that's why it's important. And and right, you know, and, and in more practical terms, there's a community here of two hundred people that need sustenance, that need food, like you were saying, we're food producers, that need a place to live, that need water. Um you know a living ecosystem gives all those things right down to the water table you know water to pump out of the ground as needed or you know to to produce the beef or the vegetables or or, or whatever whatever we're producing and it's really if you don't mind I'll just carry on with this thought because mm. as the more i've the more i've uh, learned about you know, creation and how all these things work together, you know, through the wonderful work of Christine Jones or Peter Andrews or whoever it was. There's many others that I've learned from. The more you see that nature actually shows us or gives us a pattern of how we should live and how we should be as people. So if you think about the soil biological community and the plants that they interact with, you know, they're very diverse. They're very different. But they all need to be fed and watered and and they actually depend on each other for their life. So you have the mycelial networks underground, mycorrhizal fungi that are taking energy and water and taking it from places of abundance to places where there's not enough or to plants that are weakened. You know, there's signaling going on in the soil to alert, you know, plants or biology about approaching disease or possible attack you know so there's all this symbiosis going on and it's really powerful and then I think to myself well how are we doing as you know as a society in that space shouldn't we be living in the same way and and, and part and so that really inspires me around the thought of community and you know in D'Antonia and as a Bruderhof community movement we attempt to do that. Obviously. Mm-hmm. You know it's flawed at times and, and 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 whatnot, but that's the vision the vision is to to live that out um, and it's to me astounding to see the amazing
4: creativity and um, of creation and how it it really instructs us um, in the patterns
0: of of what's important so yeah,
4: it's
2: mimicking. It's kind of a, it's a, it's a, it's a tutor, and you know, we, if we mimic that in some way, I know it's a word that gets used a lot, and I guess it's pretty, pretty true. Mm. Well, I guess mimic, mimic can be sort of not misconstrued, but like mimic is copying, but I guess it, it has to be almost adapted in a way, hasn't it? Like there's a lot of people to consider in the community. Mm. Nature has its blueprint, <clears throat> you know. It's even just thinking about you know, sacred geometry and, you know, all those crazy patterns and Fibonacci and that stuff, there's a a design there Mm. that is just internally fascinating, isn't it? And that's just the stuff that's almost stationary, you know, the the shape of a shell or the structure of a tree, Mm. you know, when you throw in the design of animals or plant movement or pasture succession, it's... um, Right. It is eternally fascinating, you know, and
0: how how in, in, in a in a living ecosystem, sacrifice is absolutely necessary. In fact, death is necessary for life to continue yes. to cycle. So, you know, and that's very much part of our communal existence. Is we have to be willing to sacrifice time or energy or whatever it is for the common good. Mm. And actually, you see that. You see that throughout society in pockets, right people who are willing to give and aren't looking to get you know people who are willing to share it's not um, is absolutely not just found in community. it can be found anywhere but it's a spirit it's a generous spirit
2: um, so does does uh i mean for you to and I think it makes absolute sense of, you know a community of i mean I what's the what's the second you know, Avatar the second the what is it called, the sequel the other day with the kids and I'd seen the first one. And um I mean there's a lot of really interesting stuff in there. Um uh and I think it's all reasonably purposeful what they what they had in there in terms of community and living and even just the underground kind of communication and so on. How does one with your grip on <clears throat> the blueprint or the the structure or the the, create, the, the, the creative opportunity that nature represents, how do you roll it out in a community? How do you kind of approach and say, hey, we're going to start doing nature stuff?
0: <laughs>
2: you know, is that a conversation you can have?
0: Yeah, look, like, like, like I was saying, the community is sort of a whole and, and I look at, you know, the landscape or the farm as sort of a holistic... Uh, Organism, well, the community is actually an organism as well. That the you know the farm landscape is part of, mm. just a part of. So, so you have that, and um, it is a beautiful. Very practically, it's a beautiful thing because when there was thirty thousand trees to plant, I didn't do it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I got a lot of help. You know, there yeah. there was, yeah. there was uh, a crew of fifteen people planting trees for two months. Yep. And uh, just as an example, and, and where ne- where the need is, there the effort can go. And maybe another day it'll be, hey, we need everybody at the sign shop to get this order out. And then we go over there and yeah, hook in and, and do get that the order out. Yeah. Um, so it's very practical, very down to earth as well. Mm. Um, and, and in terms of that.
2: And so, what of the unconscious of time, the darkness? They are incredible. That, that, those rainbows over there. Gorgeous. Not so keen on those turbines, but that's another story. Um, so, conscious of the time. So, what and what we're going to do? I reckon I'm going to suggest this, given the given the time, and we're going to pack up. And hopefully, not in the dark. Is we we're both going to my grazing tomorrow. Yep. What I might do is grab you for ten minutes, and we'll do this Q and A bit just on camera over there somewhere. Yep. Let's just do that as opposed to stopping and doing it now.
0: Do we – there's one other subject. Yeah. And that was the farrow cattle.
2: Oh, yeah, let's go there. Let's go there. Cool. Because I think it's really – Have you been eating your carrots? Because you're going to need your good eyes tonight if we're (laughs) we're back up. (laughs) Let me back up. No, go. I'm I'm, I'm really interested because I saw Kit at the Maya grazing thing some years ago and it was really interesting.
0: Yeah, so farrow cattle is really – Um, He's been working on the genetics over in the States for for quite some time. And the cattle are developed to be fertile, small to medium frame, so like a 500-kilo, 525-kilo cow. Um, Very tough, so they don't get any extras. Um, We don't drench the cattle. They get a 5-in-1 or a 7-in-1 if it's a female. and. Most importantly, that they can finish on grass. This is a breed that is really not- progeny finish on grass. Yeah. It's yeah. not, it's not a new thought. It's just taking cattle back to the way they used to be before they were bred for feedlots. Yeah. So it's going back, but also going forwards. And, and these cattle <clears throat> are proving to be very, very good in that space. They're also, you know, the bulls we're finding are able to, you know, join a lot more cows than the normal, you know,
2: so what?
3: How, number. Many, how many do you, well, they can even, go,
0: they can, you know, do their 50, 50, cows. Pretty easy. But then they can do that three times a year. Yeah. Cool. And they don't fall apart. Yep. Um, and we're so confident in, um, uh, calving ease, um, uh, side of the, the deal that there's a under dollar, um, guarantee and that, vet, vet bill is covered for, any cow that needs to have their calf pulled, yeah, there right.
4: are. Yeah, wow, that's cool.
0: So over time, we hope to build the markets, you know, for the <laughs> progeny and and all of that. But we're really excited about the the concept of these cattle.
2: And where are those where are they going to go? What, what's the end? Who's the end? Can, you know eater there? Is it obviously community? Lots to feed, but is there an eye? You go. Well, we need to get this into the world. We want people eating it. We want people. Yeah, it. so there's
0: there's a, a you know diff, different ways to market it. One is the Roots program, which is a, a new beef program that is marketing regenerative beef. And we have put that that also that, that's a a place we could go to. Um island beef could possibly be another another mm-hmm. source, but there there's plenty. Yeah. Um you know, we've had I think this past year we sold maybe 90 bulls and and the year before was maybe 75. So slowly growing and slowly getting them out there. Uh, But it really fits what this whole property and the whole regenerative process um, is happening here. It just really fits us.
2: Because they're a low maintenance, because they're a smaller frame. They don't eat as much and the, the like, you know, uh, just pretty clear, but the the significance of that was fascinating when he presented the bit of a table about you know that scale of cow cattle weight. Mm. Yeah, there was like six fifty kilo cows down to a four fifty or whatever, yeah. And then it had their average calf size at weaning. I think it was weight at weaning, right? And the it was fascinating that the um. The calf weights were about the same, whether yeah. it was a 650 cow. I mean, there's a bit of variation 650 kilo cow or a 450. Right. But right. as a percentage, like the cut, the, the weaned, <clears throat> smaller frame, faro farrow,
0: yeah, farrow, farrow, yeah.
2: um, one was, yeah, might have represented 50% of the, of the body weight of the cow,
0: right? And, and and so when you actually look at your productivity per hectare in That's terms it. of kilos of beef, you're yeah. way up, yeah, so you can actually have a 30%. Increase in kilos of beef per hectare, mm. by going with this type of animal,
2: so yeah, kilos of grass eaten produces x number of kilos
0: of right. of beef, but because the cows are smaller, like like a seven hundred kilo <clears throat> cow, which is probably the size we used to run, is going to eat a lot more grass to produce the same same
2: calf. yeah the same same amount of meat or calf the, the fish yeah. totally totally
0: so yeah, so that, you know. And that the main stud is uh, Frucabad Station. Uh, they're about whatever half an hour's drive east towards of us, towards land. And We're yes. co-producers, so yeah. our the pro, you know the bulls we produce go to them, and then they finish them off and sell them. Mm. That's how that works.
2: That's awesome. Um, let's finish this tomorrow. You reckon? Yep. Do a we're bit good. of that. Sure. Um, that's, I'm sorry we didn't get down here a bit earlier. I mean, just the way we finished the course and the generators and the whole thing. What a lovely little spot to be. No, that's meant to be, you know, Mm. and this was such a great spot. Um, Johannes, thank you so much. I'm so, I'm so thrilled the way you, not so much the way you handled it, but the way you brought back the history of your family and, um, you know the the community and how you got to be here that's absolutely fascinating i love I love that stuff I just i think it's and it speaks of resilience it speaks of you know there's trials and tribulations and there's like and there's sort of there was a need to survive mm. and you know the community has done that um and here we are having enjoyed two days of wonderful food and community and communion and it's just been it's been it's been fantastic. I hope this is not my last trip here. Mm. Um, and we'll we'll make it. We'll yeah. make we'll make a plan.
0: Absolutely, we'll, do, we'll, do, we'll uh, and, do something. You know, and in all of that, you know, I believe there's a hand that you know, a power that leads that's over us. You know, I think many of us human being beings feel that, and uh, we may express it in different ways, but. It's there
4: and
0: um can trust in that good vibe here mm. <laughs>
4: <laughs> let's get back up let's get backed up
2: can we have Thanks, one of, Charlie, can, can, we, can we, can we have cool. one of the uh, Can we have one of those beers we had last
3: night
2: Oh yeah <laughs> 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 okay we'll um i'll see you I'll see you shortly, but i'll see you next we'll pick it up tomorrow with it for our patron members on the q and a Thanks, Shana. It's Wonderful. And next week on The Regenerative Journey, my guest is Kim Deans. I caught up with Kim and her husband, Angus, actually, uh, at their farm at Tinga in northern New South Wales near Inburil. Uh I didn't interview Angus, though. So he has an amazing story as well. The, the couple are a real powerhouse in farming and all sorts of other cool things. The garden is amazing. Um, their stories of the fire that um, uh, that hit them a few years ago are incredible. Um, Kim, uh, <laughs> we have to wait to next next week. But Kim's journey is all about farming biodynamics uh, on farm finances. Um, she's actually a contributor to uh, uh, in our webinar series as well, uh, which you can go and grab yourself a place at a virtual uh, webinar series. Your regenerative journey. Go to uh, our website, charliearnett.com.au to grab your tickets. But next week, our guest, Kim Deans, on the regenerative journey.
1: This podcast is produced by Rhys Jones at Jaeger Media. If you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to subscribe, share, rate and review. For more episode information, please head over to www.charliearnott.com.au.